Hey, everyone. I'm taking a break from releasing new episodes of the Rural Woman podcast during our Harvest 21 season, but not to worry. We will be re-releasing some of your favorite interviews in the meantime to keep you company. This week's replay is back from episode 39 with Nicole Masters. I reached out to Nicole to check in and see what's been happening since we last spoke to give you all an update. Well, it turns out her book tour and 55 events were canceled following that, which no surprise due to COVID. But she's been able to take her soil education offerings online, including a horse course for soil lovers. And this November, she's running her first ever Coach the Coaches School for people interested in becoming agroecological coaches and consultants. All of these details, including links to purchase her book, are on her website, which will be listed at the end of today's show and is included in today's show notes. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Stitcher Premium. For those of you who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android. Stitcher is home of over 260,000 podcasts, including the Rural Woman Podcast, We Drink and We Farm Things, Midwest Farmwives Podcast, and more. Stitcher also has smart recommendations and playlists so you can find your new favorite show and organize all of your current favorite podcasts, including the Roll Woman Podcast. Sign up today for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today. Use promo code RuralWoman for your first month free. On this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast, you'll hear from Nicole Masters, who is an internationally recognized agroecologist dedicated to helping land managers regenerate soil health. Her mission is to help producers create vibrant, profitable, and healthy food production from the soil up. Nicole recently released a new book titled For the Love of Soil, all about a land manager's roadmap to healthy soils and to revitalize food systems in a challenging time. I think Mr. Wildrose Farmer was a little bit jealous that I got to interview Nicole versus him interviewing Nicole. So I'm excited for you guys to hear my interview with Nicole. But before we get to today's interview, let's go over the review of the week. So the review of the week this week comes from Malia M via Apple Podcast. This five-star rating and review is titled Addictive and Inspirational. I started listening this past week and couldn't stop until I listened to every episode. I'm so inspired by Caitlin and the women she interviews. I love listening and learning from them, and I can't wait to start my own mini farm journey. Well, thank you so much, Malia, for your kind rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And if you guys haven't left your rating and review yet, what are you waiting for? Just head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave your kind words, and I will be reading them on an upcoming episode. And a big hello to our newest patrons, Melanie G, Sarah R, and Marina S. Thank you, ladies, so much for joining the patron crew over on Patreon. You can join the crew too. Just head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. 
And without further ado, my friends, let's get started with Nicole's interview. Good morning, Nicole. How are you? I'm fantastic, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited to talk to you on the Royal Woman podcast today, Nicole. It's so great to finally be able to connect with you and share your story to the audience. So for my audience who is unfamiliar with Nicole Masters, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Well, your listeners might pick up a a slight accent. So I'm New Zealand born. I'm an agroecologist. So I focus on whole systems and agriculture. I've been working in the field for over 20 years. And I'm mainly based in the US these days. So I spend most of my time in North America working with ranchers and farmers. So how did you get your start in agriculture? I actually was born and raised as an air rat. So I spent my early days not in agriculture at all, having aunts and uncles and family members that were involved in agriculture, but not my family directly. And I mean, they were my favorite memories, you know, being going down and doing milking at three o'clock in the morning and that just clear skies and that silence except for the cows and you know, it's that romantic vision you have as a child and, and just thinking, yeah, one day I'm, I'm going to be involved in agriculture. And I think, too, being a pilot's daughter, I spent a lot of time looking down. And as a child, I was very concerned about land use mismanagement. And New Zealand has a lot of erosion problems when you don't manage it well. And just seeing entire homesteads coming down and seeing rivers that were really muddy and, yeah, being very concerned. And feeling like there's got to be a better way to work in agriculture and produce food. Yeah, when I was 20, my father bought a farm and then I started it together. And it was that thing of, what do they say, uh, green on green makes black and blue. <laughs> green on green makes black and blue. If you've got people that don't really understand whole systems or what they're doing. And, you know, we learned the hard way a lot of times. And it was a fantastic apprenticeship for me. So we planted 700 avocado trees. We re-established wetlands. My father was really interested in Galfie, so we did a Galfie stud for a while. And I my, my son. And through that process, I was a single parent, and it was really hard to find work in a rural area when you're a single parent. And my dad actually helped me buy a worm farm business. It's a deceased worm farm estate in this um, article in a paper, or in this advert, rather. And so he helped me out, and I brought that. And... I started to get really interested in composting, commercial-scale composting, vermiculture, and making specific worm cast lens for different sectors. So I was making a worm casting that was biologically balanced for pasture and one that was for um, the avocado, so very, very fungal developed. I was also selling a lot of vermicast to hydroponic stores for who I suspect was probably growing marijuana. And those marijuana guys really understand the value of vermicast because of its water holding ability, for its nutrient exchange, and for the health of the crop that they grow. So it was a pretty steep learning curve, and um, yeah, it was it really exciting times? That does sound exciting. And to become a farmer, even for your father at a later age in life, that probably gives you a kind of a broader scope or a different thought process behind, like being a first-generation farmer later in life. Oh, absolutely. And I think particularly coming from, you know, he was working in the airlines, you have very structured days. You know what you're going to do. You know which parts to be pushed after which. And then to come into agriculture and just go, 
whoa, there's like lots of buttons and you could go in any direction and you don't know what your day is going to look like and you don't know what's going to happen and you need to have so many broad skills. And I think often people don't appreciate from the outside how skilled and talented generalists that farmers and ranchers need to be. Like you need to understand animals, you need to understand mechanics, you need to understand climate and, you know, there's so much to it. And so, yeah, I think that gave me an appreciation really for how much people were juggling. Absolutely. So, Nicole, how did you become the globally recognized soil advocate and agroecologist that you are today? <laughs> well, it wasn't really the intention. I certainly didn't set out thinking, right, I'm going to be a global recognized something or other. But I think, I mean, it's felt to me for a long time that there's been this real trying to drag soil out into the forefront of people's minds and particularly in New Zealand, just finding I was coming up against walls, like working with sector groups, beef and lamb and the wool industry and, and horticulture, and they just weren't interested, just not interested in soil health at all. I think in New Zealand there's this assumption that, oh, you know, we're doing just fine because they get rain <laughs> and they're very young soils. So when you look at the destruction of New Zealand soils, what was happening here in the 30s in the US and Canada really didn't happen in New Zealand until the 50s and 60s. So we're sort of 30 years behind and really waking up to the destruction of soil, which is happening quite rapidly in New Zealand. And so I think it was stepping out of those confines of the New Zealand context because, yeah, it did feel like it was hitting walls and starting to work in Australia and finding uh, catchment management groups and land care groups that really were engaged with soil health and really did understand how vital it was. And then I came to the US in 2013 and started working with ranchers here and just working with really progressive, outward-looking producers who, you know, caught the soil bug. And now it's just exciting to see that a topic that many consider probably quite boring and not very sexy and not all that interesting, people are like, whoa, wow, really? You know, there's all of these different aspects to it. And so I think soil finally has, you know, light up people's lives and I'm in the right place for the first time. So I'm going to go find something else to do, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you say people don't think soil is sexy because I am married to a person who thinks soil is the sexiest thing. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I think once you do get hooked, you do realize, oh, wow, you know, it's, it is actually for me, certainly more exciting than rocket launches or, you know, going to Mars or anything like that. It's that it's such a new frontier of discovery and there's so much about it that ties into, you know, human health and animal health. And I think if you're concerned about greenhouse gases or concerned about, you know, climate variability or water quality or food health or human health, or you know, like everything comes back to soil health. So I think it's non-political and it does appeal, well, personally, I think it should appeal to everybody, even if you're in the cities. Absolutely. It's so complex and it comes back to the soil with anything, whether you're a farmer or whether you live in the city, anything like that. So very interesting. So tell us more about the services that Integrity Soils provides. Yeah, so I have a team of five consultants and or coaches and they're predominantly working in Australasia, so Australia and New Zealand. For me, I spend most of my time, I'm living in a horse trailer and trying to travel with my horse as much as possible through North America and predominantly focusing on the education and coaching side. I'm focusing right now on developing a coaching training 
school, so an online school for the coaches, because one of the things that I'm really seeing is missing is having those people when you're a large-scale operation and you're wanting to transition, having someone that can work with you and, and take you through those steps. So as a business, that is what we're really doing is our business or our mission statement is that we have clients that no longer require us, that we empower and enable producers to read their soils, look at weeds differently, look at animal health differently, think about water cycles, measure things that they weren't measuring in the past, and really get to the bottom of what is putting a drag on my particular operation. And so we have a process that we call the five M's, which is we look at what is putting that drag. Is it your minerals, your microbes, your organic matter, which is on, just kind of cheating, your management or your mindset. And we go through those things to have a look at what is going to make a difference in making your soil function again. So a lot of, as we travel around, we're just seeing incredibly, incredibly disruptive, disabled, dysfunctional soil systems. And that impacts on everything, but it impacts on people's bottom lines. Some of the studies we're involved in, it's actually showing how not regenerating your soil impacts on well-being. So general stress and and the well-being of producers, which is really interesting. And so, yeah, as a company, we, in Australasia anyway, we're working one-on-one with clients to walk them through, okay, how do we shift management to build soil? Or what is it right now that is actually degrading soil? Or why have you got these particular diseases in livestock? Like, what does that have to do with soil? And just getting people really connected to, it is a whole system, and it's very complex. But at the same time, it's very simple. You know, and we relate a lot of what we're doing in terms of how the, the human gut functions as well. So I think a lot of people can relate better to their own bodies than they do to land. And just thinking about, you know, what are we eating and how does that affect gut function? And particularly here in the US, because so many people have disrupted guts. <laughs> and so we go through that process of, of thinking, yeah, how is your soil gut system being disrupted? What are the kind of things that will disrupt that? And How do we rebuild so we have a system that becomes very functional that you require very little intervention? Very cool. And like you said, relating it back to your own bodily health versus trying to explain it as soil health, I think there'll be a lot more people that can relate to that and can kind of put it into that context and it not seem so confusing or overwhelming. So that's a great example to use. Hey, all we'll get right back to our episode after a word from our sponsor. Nestled in the tree-filled mountains by Kootenai Lake in Nelson, British Columbia, KL Skin Naturals was founded in 2013 by owner Leah. KL Skin Naturals is known for their award-winning natural deodorant that I have personally been using since early 2017, and I can tell you from personal experience, it passes the farming test. You know what I'm talking about. I feel good knowing that the deodorant that I'm using is free from harsh chemicals and scents. All of their products are produced by hand from the very first measure to the very last label. Each recipe was worked, researched, perfected, and tested on family and friends who all agree that there's something unique to be offered in the effective products that Leah is making. Listeners of the Rural Woman podcast can save 10% off their order with promo code WILDROSE10. So head on over to klskindeodorant.com to choose from their wide selection of clean scented natural deodorants, plus other natural skincare products such as fresh aloe skin cream, foot butters, and more. And now back to our episode. So can you tell the listeners 
about the principles of regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I think it's a good question because there's a lot of demand for defining regenerative agriculture and that's really coming from people outside of the sector. So it's coming from people who are interested in markets or political discussions or whatever. But actually, regenerative agriculture is about these principles. It's about, you know, it's a journey. There's no final destination on this one. So it's about what are the principles and then what are the outcomes? So the principles are pretty, the main soil principle, health principles that are kind of being really promoted at the moment are things like minimising disturbance. And when people think minimising disturbance, they think of cultivation. But disturbance is much broader than that. It could be a biological or chemical disturbance, people using pesticides or pesticides or um, soluble fertilisers. Those things are all disturbances. Or overgrazing is a disturbance. Even undergrazing is actually creates disturbance. So, or a lack of disturbance. So, disturbance is one of the key principles. The other thing is keeping armour or keeping cover on the ground at all times. So, that means not having practices like the chemical fallowing or creating desertification or creating open ground or bare ground through management. So, making sure that there's always some kind of protection on that surface. If that's animals trampling litter, if it's using cover crops that you're pushing down on the ground or crimping down. The other thing is diversity. So if you think about soil, these soil principles, they all come back to what would it look like in nature? How would nature do it? Or that question of biomimicry. And so natural systems are incredibly diverse. So moving away from a monocultural approach, or if you are using monocultures, that's um, or a wheat producer, how do we increase the diversity in that system? So some people are using that through encouraging microbiology, and diversity of microbes. They're, we're seeing more and more producers now using intercropping, putting different species into the mixes, and really trying to mix up what they're doing in terms of monocultural crops. The other thing is having a living plant root for as long as possible. And I also add having a photosynthetic and all for as long as possible that is photosynthesizing as high as possible so that we have plants that fulfilling their full genetic potential that they are capturing sunlight energy and then pumping that down into the soil system, which is where we build our carbon. There's discussion around making sure that you're integrating livestock for some operations. It's really challenging. So either they're, they're integrating livestock or using the manures from livestock. So they might be using compost extracts or compost to try and get some of that biological element of livestock out into the system. So yeah, that's kind of six base level principles you know and so when we're out even if it's in your garden thinking you know how can I increase diversity and really avoiding cultivation and avoiding having you know bare exposed soil you know keeping plants living for as long as possible so maybe if you come into a really hot dry summer what are species that actually will continue to grow in that situation yeah, and often if you're in smaller areas you're not going to be able to get livestock in the system oh but you could do rabbits or guinea pigs or something like that but yeah, thinking, okay, how do I get manures? And there's an awful lot of manure that's sitting around, and you will see this around Lethbridge. You know, there's huge piles of manure that basically just sits there and then becomes pollution instead of something that's incredibly valuable. So often what we see are just resources and not being distributed evenly throughout agriculture, so excesses in places and, and not enough in other places. Yeah, so basic principles. And then we look to what the outcomes. Are you increasing the quality of the food that you're producing? Are you increasing water holding capacity? Is the water quality that comes off your property increased? Are you seeing more diversity of species? And that could be insects, 
it could be wildlife, it could be the plant species that you're growing. Are we reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Are we part of the solution effectively? So one operation I work with in Australia, we calculated that every year they draw down the emissions of 22,000 people. Just one operation is having that impact. So those are the outcomes that we look at for regenerative. Is Are you actually regenerating? Are you creating systems that are more vibrant and alive than they were last year? So for someone that's on a really degraded soil, that base that you're starting at might be pretty low. But if you can say to yourself every year, you know what, we're actually, this is improving. This resource is actually improving. Because I think, I mean, particularly when you look in the literature, they've done studies and shown that 87% of ranchers and farmers see themselves as stewards. They really do believe that they're looking after the land resource. But unfortunately, what we see coming out in terms of greenhouse gases or dust particles and aerosols and water quality and food quality, that stewardship argument doesn't stack up. But people actually do want that as an outcome. So it it comes down to how do we actually align what you're committed to with your actions? For sure. And I think those outcomes that you were talking about from the farm in Australia, those are incredible. That is like amazing to reduce the emissions for 22,000 people. That is amazing. And how many Mm -hmm. acres of land are they on there? Well, when we did that particular calculation, it was based on 24,000 acres, but they're up to 44,000 acres now. So their impact is even larger. We need to do the recalculations. They need to do some more soil measurements so we can have a look at that. But that's the potential and well, that's the minimum potential because actually that landscape in Western Australia, they can't draw down the same amount of carbon as, say, you could on the Golden Triangle up in Canada or those the prairie lands that are really degraded. You have massive potential to build even more carbon than that. Absolutely. You know, people are really focusing on carbon, but actually, you know, carbon's just one aspect of the whole picture when it comes to what's happening with climate mitigation and what the potential is that's offered directly to producers. So, you know, if you're increasing soil carbon, and that's things like organic matter and your root exudates, you're also increasing your water cycle, you're increasing your nitrogen cycle and your sulfur and your phosphorus. So we increase food quality while we're increasing water holding capacity. And we're also reducing the fine particles that are creating what we call the humid hazes. So there's some real issues with desertification. So you think every end of every day... Every second, we lose another acre of land to desertification. And so this is almost a plague that's spreading across the planet that people are really unaware of. And one of the consequences of desertification is this breakdown of the water cycle and this increase of these dusts. And you'll see these humid hazes like when you fly into anywhere in California or you come into any major cities, you see these hazes being kicked up. And what they do is they are creating more of this thermal warming in the atmosphere. And if we're losing water out of our soils, which most, I'd say, 95% of properties I go to have broken water cycles, that water, instead of being absorbed and held in soils, is now up in the atmosphere. And what's the problem is that water vapour is our biggest driver for climate change more than the fossil fuels that we're burning. It's actually land management, putting concrete over you know, large areas of land and building cities and cultivating and all of this is leading to increasing this concern around greenhouse effects in the atmosphere. Those are alarming numbers. And that's an alarming change that we're going through. And we hear all the studies and stats that come out. And 
for somebody who doesn't know a lot about soil health, it can be overwhelming to hear these Mm -hmm. numbers and kind of helpless almost if you don't know what to do to make changes, either if you're a farmer or a rancher, to mitigate these numbers. Mm -hmm. So what are some methods that farmers or ranchers can do to implement regenerative agriculture to their practice? Well, I think looking at those principles and looking at why is it that have green growing roots all year round or why don't I have armor and really getting to the base, you know, is it my management? And yes, probably it is. (laughs) Or is it my mindset? Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest drivers actually we see is you've got to really ask these questions. You've got to really build your observation skills because although it can seem overwhelming, it's also incredibly exciting because if we've lost let's say 60% of your carbon in your soil, which is 60% of your water holding capacity, you can also get that back. And what we're seeing on from working on properties around you know, Australasia and North America is we can build soil far, far more rapidly than what people ever thought was possible. And that's incredibly exciting. And so things like animal impact, so not just turning stock into a field for two months, and in New Zealand we call it she'll be right, you know, just turn them out and what we're looking for is how do we replicate what the bison were doing? How do we, what the wildebeest are doing and zebra? You know, there's heavy animal impact, long recoveries, allowing plants to really get away. For cropping, I actually see a lot more rapid opportunities, I guess, because we can put things down with the drill. We can buffer our chemicals. I mean, one of the first places to look at often is what should I stop using? Because it's these things like your seed treatments and I, I I go into this in depth in my upcoming book, For the Love of Soil. So we we really look at, well, what are those seed treatments actually doing to your soil and to your plant and to your bottom line? So a lot of these insecticides and fungicides create more problems for a a farmer than what they solve. So looking at, okay, these are a couple of things that need to be pulled out of the system and then you need to look at why do you have insects and why do you have fungal diseases and then approach it at that base level. So insects aren't just attracted to anything. You know, if you have pests like army cutworm or hoppers that have that have just been playing proportions this year, they're actually attracted to plants that have um, what we call the free amino acids, free proteins, low boron, low zinc. And these plants are actually sending a signal to the insects that says, come and clean me up. And so why is it that your plants are stressed? Why are they not being able to form complete proteins and what's interesting is they've done some of this work at Utah State University is if you feed those plants um, insects and then these plants are healthy, those insects grow slower, they lay less eggs, the eggs that then hatch have smaller babies in them that then have a lower reproductive rate themselves. So insects will choose not to eat healthy plants. And we've always seen that anecdotally in the field and it's just exciting to see that there's more research coming out behind it to show you get plants healthy, you get diversity in the system, you're not going to have an insect problem. So cut out those insecticides. That is some good advice. And it's good to know that there's research now that is coming out to back this up and kind of explain, I guess, what has been going on for all this time. Mm -hmm. And now we can explain why this is actually happening. And if we're building the healthy soils and the healthy plants, then the healthy insects will come and then the bad insects will stay away. Because good insects are good and bad insects are bad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they did a really interesting study through the Corn Belt with Jonathan Lundgren in the U.S. And they found that 
think it was about a six-fold increase of pest insects in the conventional compared to the regenerative. So, you know, on a square yard of soil, they counted like 20 pest insects in the regenerative and they counted 120 pest insects in the conventional. And that's with using insecticides and seed treatments, which is just fascinating. So it's like actually some of the seed treatments like neonicotinoids, they change 600 genes in the plant. So they actually change the plant physiology. And those 600 genes, some of them are involved in cell wall strength and actual plant protection. And it's like people are putting on products that are actually kneecapping their plants and they create other problems downstream. And that's what's really interesting to me is you, you get to the bottom of that stuff and then you realize most of this is set up to benefit product buyers. It's not there to benefit the farmers and the ranchers. And I think putting the power back into farmers' hands is where we overcome that sense of disempowerment or that sense of hopelessness because actually there's lots and lots and lots of things that we can. You know, there's biological treatments that we can use for insects while we are building the health of that crop. We can look at why is that crop not healthy and then actually address it. And it might be things like trace elements or soils that are compacted, which is a big problem out there. And you would have seen it around Lethbridge. There's serious compaction on a lot of farm ground. And just by addressing compaction, then we can find that systems really start moving positively. Absolutely. Have you been loving the Rural Woman podcast? Are you wondering how you can support the show? Well, friend, I'm happy to announce that I've recently joined Patreon. What is Patreon? Well, it's a membership-based platform that provides a simple way for you to contribute to the Rural Woman podcast every month and get exclusive rewards in return. Memberships start as low as $2 a month. Seriously, that's less than your grande, skinny, extra-hot caramel macchiato with whip. Wondering what the rewards are? Well, they include promo codes for Shop Wild Rose Farmer, draws for the Rural Woman Podcast merchandise, shout-outs on the show, and more. Your financial support of the Rural Woman Podcast will help make it possible for the stories of women in agriculture to continue to be shared. So head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to find out more information about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Nicole, what do you think some of the biggest benefits are of implementing regenerative agriculture, not only for farmers and ranchers, but for urbanites and the environment altogether? Well, I think this in part is why people are getting so excited because there's so many benefits for ecosystems that start to function. I mean, it's an exciting time to be on the planet and can be a really overwhelming time if you think of you know, insect populations are collapsing, waterways are collapsing, fisheries are collapsing, <laughs> greenhouse gases, you know, rah, rah, rah. But actually, we have the opportunity to restore that function. And I think, you know, a big part of that is why we see the wellness index increase for farmers that are doing this, because you really see the life come back. I see ranches just being really joy-filled because they just saw, you know, a bunch of Hungarian partridges come past being chased by a fox. And they're like, see what starts to come, you know, when we've got tall grass systems, we have all these moles and bowls, and you just find ranches get reconnected to life on their property and, and the exciting, you know, opportunity of being a really great steward. So I think for people in, you know, the urban communities to keep some of those producers because you're connecting to real vibrant healthy food systems again and that's one of the outcomes is are you improving the nutrient quality of the food 
Are you reducing the chemical residues that are on food? And I think consumers are becoming increasingly concerned about those kind of questions. And so, yeah, I think it's exciting because if you can connect with some of these farmers and ranchers and go, actually, I want a nil residue um, crop that's, you know, high in elements and is actually food for me, which is those Australian croppers I were talking about, they're measuring the digestibility of their wheat. Even though they use a little bit of herbicides, their wheat is actually nil residue. It's cleaner than many of the crops because they're looking after soil health and the microbiology will actually help to bioaccumulate those pesticides and herbicides and anything that might be sitting in the soil. I mean, one of the issues you have here in the US is that your rainfall is full of herbicides, which is terrifying. And by having a biological system, it can actually cope with that little bit of herbicide and can break it down and make sure that it's not available to the plant. So yeah, I think it's an exciting time. Absolutely. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are in regenerative agriculture? One, I think that you're going to reduce yields. That is not something we've found to be that holds up in the field. Two, that it's not profitable. This is actually a far more profitable venture. And I think that Jonathan Lundgren's study also showed that the regenerative producers were 76% more profitable than the conventional. And, you know, like, if you're not looking at it, you want to start looking at it. And the other thing is that it can't be done on a large scale. And I would say most of the producers that I work with are large. I think our average producer size is probably 10,000 acres. And what I find is actually it's even easier to implement it on a large scale because you have the equipment, you have the herd size. There's lots of opportunities that we can have by being a larger scale. Yeah, I think they'd probably be three or four of the main concerns that I hear. And, and one of the issues for the concern, I guess, out there in the farming community is around risk. And actually, the only risk is not taking on a regenerative program. That is the main risk. If you can continue to do the status quo and continue to lose resilience and water holding capacity and have increased costs, that's not viable. It's not stewardship. And you certainly, those businesses are not going to continue to be in business, especially with variable climate. We've just come through the most calmest, easiest growing conditions that the planet has ever seen for the last, you know, close to 12,000 years. And now I think we're going to see an increase of this volatility. And, you know, farming and ranching is hard enough as it is without, you know, flash floods and droughts and hail and grasshopper attacks. And so I actually did a workshop in Australia and the Honourable Alana McTiernan, who was the Minister for in Australia Agriculture, came and spoke at my conference. And she said, if Australia is not practising regenerative farming practices, there will be no agriculture in Australia in the next five to ten years which was pretty scary and pretty damning. And I think you see this right now. I mean, you can see all the fires that are happening on the East Coast. They've seen some of the biggest frost events. They've seen some of the biggest heat waves and fires, obviously. So I think the risk is if you continue to just business as usual is not going to cut it. Absolutely. Well, and just the weather events that have happened here in North America and like the ones you're talking about in Australia, they're alarming. It's scary and they're Mm -hmm. happening for reasons. And now that we're discovering what these reasons are and we have ways to mitigate the climate change that we in agriculture are helping to produce. Like, I think it's something definitely that everyone should take a look at. And it doesn't require every single farmer and rancher to do it. That's the exciting thing. If if you think of one farm having the drawdown effect of 22,000 people, we just need enough concentration 
of ranches and farms to do this. Actually, not practicing regenerative agriculture is changing local weather patterns. So if you look at the chemical fallow processes or tree removal in some areas, it's significantly declining the water cycle. So we create systems that then become more droughty and then become more prone to these flash flood events. And so if communities can actually take this on, then as communities, you can actually change your local weather pass. And I think the studies that they did in Saskatchewan and Montana showed that over chemical fallow, they were reducing their average rainfall by 19%. So by clearing land and having soil bare, you're actually changing the weather pants. That's insane. That's crazy to me. Yeah. And you and I yeah. know about Saskatchewan. They definitely need rain. <laughs> yep, they do. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to be scaring it off. And, and that's the other funny thing is, well, it's not funny, but I go to proper people's soils are hydrophobic, which means they're literally afraid of water. You know, and it's like... What are you doing to create a soil environment that is now afraid of water? And it gets really challenging in, I guess, the modern farming paradigm to try and change it. You've created hydrophobic conditions, but we can change those really, really fast. And it might be through cover crops. It might be through your animal management or mineral management that we can change hydrophobic conditions. So, yeah, again, it's that thing of people, if you look back in your historic records of what was the ground cover here, you know, what kind of grasses? Oh, you know, there were grasses we could tie over the back of the horse. And then I go to ranches and all they're growing is club moss. And it's like, okay, well, here's an opportunity. And we could actually, you know, significantly bring these lives, landscapes back to life. For sure. Nicole, in your travels, Mm. which countries do you find are adapting these regenerative practices the quickest? I think it's really interesting, and I I think it's global. I think what's happening right now is happening globally. It's just happening in pockets. Certainly, when I go to Australia, we're seeing some pretty big change, and that, for me, is a little sad that you you have to be put to the point of suffering before you start to look what are the other options. But take Australia, for instance. I've got, I think, eight three-day workshops lined up. Every week I'm doing a three-day workshop. They are those workshops and I'm turning them away. I probably could have booked double. So that wouldn't have happened five years ago. So we're seeing some really big changes in Australia. But I think, you know, US has actually led the way for a lot of this regenerative approach for a long time. It's just been in these isolated pockets. And now those pockets of people are being recognized. They're on the speaker circuit. They're out there just flogging themselves to try and get these practical messages out, producers. So I think you know, we're seeing some change really quickly. I'm in Big Timber right now, Montana, and we were looking at land area just around these hubs of innovative producers, and we believe it's over 55% of the land area, just probably in a 10-mile radius, is running regenerative programs, which is just so exciting. Yeah, yeah. that's very exciting. And especially just to find them in these little pockets. I think it's so interesting and fascinating that a group of farmers or ranchers in a certain area are adapting these practices. And it kind of just seems out of the blue. Like you're talking about these big operations in Australia that have 22,000 acres that are doing these things, but to find these little pockets in North America that are doing essentially the same thing or using these practices yeah. too. I think that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. And it would have been, I mean, it would have been 2001 when I was living with, my dad and my mentor had been doing this for 30 years and he'd come out of Utah originally and was now in New Zealand. And so it's not like it's really new. 
like these principles, these approaches are not really new. And when you hang out with a lot of the guys that are really showing those changes on the ground, they've certainly been doing things for over 20 years. There's a project in Australia called Soils for Life, and they're collecting case studies from 100 regenerative producers around the country and really showing just, you know, this happened for a long time, but people not feeling like they, one, could talk about it in their community, and two, even had the ability to get out and communicate what they were doing because you just got your head down, bum up, and you're, you're working on your own piece of land. And I think that's where technology's been so helpful in terms of podcasts like this and, you know, YouTube videos for people to actually see it without actually having to travel. So I think we're seeing a very rapid uptake and very rapid change. Even the articles about regenerative agriculture or soil health in you know, mainstream newspapers now is really exciting. And we weren't seeing that even, well, it depends when we are in the world, but, you know, two to three years ago, that wasn't happening. In New Zealand, that's really only been happening in the last six months. You know, it's like, how long can we ignore it for? Oh, yeah, okay, actually. You know, we did a survey through the Hawke's Bay where I was living 10 years ago. And at that time, 7.5% of the local area was being managed regenerative, And that's not including organic. And it's like, well, that's in a sheep and beef. That's actually quite significant. You know, it means one out of every 10 farmers pretty much that you meet are practicing these practices. They just didn't want to communicate about it for fear of being ostracized. And now I feel like that conversation's changing. So you're not a weirdo anymore if you are actually doing soil health. And what I hope will start to happen is the weirdos are the ones that aren't practicing soil health practices. <laughs> Absolutely. It's good to be a weirdo now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so we're you weirdos, and you yeah. think you're weird. What you do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned before mm. that you recently published a book. So tell us more about that. I'm very excited. It's um, been a long time in the making, but I, and I actually wrote a book previously, and I'd written thirty thousand words, which is half a book, and it was um, saved on Dropbox, and Dropbox deleted it. I was. Yeah, that might have been like nine years ago, and I was really gutted. And That's heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm so pleased that I didn't finish it because that book would have sucked. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> like, yeah, it's really different. Like, it would have been very technical and like a lot more of the science, whereas this book is much more of people's stories in terms of how is it we transform the landscape. And I go through my triage. So the triage of thinking that we use when we are working with a client. So we go out onto a piece of land, where's that critical place to look? You know, is that soil breathing? Because if the soil's not breathing, guess what? Nothing else happens. You know, roots can't function, biology can't function. And so we look at, well, how is it that we address the breakdown of air movement in a soil and using people's stories to kind of convey some of that technical. So friends of mine or clients of mine that are really technical say that they've really enjoyed the book because it goes deep enough them but then others that have never come across regenerative agriculture are telling me they just really enjoy the stories and they really enjoy just learning more about soil in a way that's easy to read and that was my desire there's a lot of really good technical books that would certainly point people towards but I wanted a book that a rancher would actually be able to read without falling asleep and the other thing is we'll actually have the audio book out and hopefully another two weeks for those that do fall asleep <laughs> because I know a lot of people these days are listening to audiobooks. but my goal really was to give people some very clear actionable points that they could go and implement to think about what some of the things that are commonly used are actually doing to your soil and plant and human health so that 
you just are a bit more informed so you can make better decisions because it's really hard sometimes to push back against those salesmen that come down the you know they come down your driveway and they fall all people full of fear, you know, if you don't do this, then, oh, you know, your whole system is going to fall apart. She had a really interesting conversation with a rancher or a farmer recently, and he had insect traps around his property so that he could look and see, is there anything that's coming to his property that might be of an issue? And so local salesmen come up and try and sell him, I think it was amylin or some chemical for insect control. And he said, oh, you've got to apply this because the army cutworms are coming. There's this massive invasion. And the, the farmer was, well, I've got these traps and I'm not seeing any army cutworm. And the guy was like, well, okay, maybe they're not coming, but you're better to be prepared. <laughs> and the guy, the guy just laughed him off the property. But there is this, this fear that if you don't use this chemical, the, you know, the sky is falling and the wheels are going to come off and you're risking your family and, and all of that. And I think the better that you are informed, you can have those conversations with the chemical supply guys or have the ability to say, you know what, I know I don't need this chemical. I know that's actually undermining my profitability and my soil health. So thanks, but no thanks. So that was a big book, was just hopefully giving people information that's that's easy to read. Yeah, and I've already started on the next book. Like I'm just like, <laughs> it was really hard to finish it because I'm like, this is the new frontier. There is so much stuff coming out every day about what ranchers and farmers have been seeing hundreds of years and never had the science to back it up. Absolutely. And that's so great that you're already onto your next book. That's wonderful. <laughs> so where can the listeners find your current book? It is on Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And the audiobook will be available on all audio streaming resources. So I think this it's being put on thirty one different book platforms, audio books. So that should be easy to get hold of. It's called For the Love of Soil. And are you reading the audiobook yourself? Of course. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to Gabe Brown's book and just thinking, oh, it's so much nicer when the actual author reads their own book because, you know, and especially this book is very much written in a conversational tone. It's one of the first things people say to me. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you, like we're just talking. And so I did consider getting a less accented British well-spoken or something for the American audience because if I'm American sometimes with accents but then I was like nah. I have been told by my American listeners that they enjoy my Canadian accent so I'm sure they will be loving your New Zealand accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah oh that's yeah, you great. think the accent would be easy for them to understand. But yeah, <laughs> who knows. <laughs> Nicole what do you think is the most rewarding part for you about the work that you do advocating for soil health? Seeing the light turn on for people. I stay with people a lot. I mean, I'm pretty much in people's houses nearly all the time. And just seeing a concept light someone up and their whole, what becomes possible shifts. And something changes. Something changes in people's eyes. It just, yeah, they do. They get lit up. And um, yeah, that's, I think, what I, I do this for is just to feel like, you know, we really are shifting what's possible in agriculture up a whole notch and what felt like it was depressing or stressful or there were no opportunities, just shifts. And yeah, so, you know, just feeling really privileged to be in this place where I feel like I'm having an impact on people's lives. Yeah, it's inspiring. Absolutely. And I think the work that you're doing is not only inspiring farmers and ranchers, but people on the outside of the agricultural world and their like you said before, consumers are now 
interested about their food and where it comes from and how it's produced and what the impact is not only on themselves, but on the environment. So I think the work that you're doing is really helping the planet. So thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole, for listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? I have a website, which is integritysoils.co.nz. So co.nz. I'm very difficult to get hold of. (laughs) Very difficult. (laughs) So um, yeah, if they have any inquiries or questions, any inquiries or questions and probably through the website would be a great place to start. Our schedule is just jam-packed for the next year or as far as I can see. So yeah, it's it's exciting time. So there will be workshops. I think we're doing a workshop in BC in August and one in Manitoba. And those will probably be the only Canadian workshops I do next year. But yeah, if people are interested in having a workshop hosted, yeah, get hold of us through the website and see if we can do some more Canadian workshops in 2021. Great. And I will put the link to your website in the show notes so people can find you and find out about your events, your book, and how to contact you. Oh, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can stay connected with me on Instagram at wildrosefarmer. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.